Welcome to Rooftop Church. This podcast is part of our Sunday sermon series, where each week we dive into the Word of God and the powerful message of Christ. Now, concerning being sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, or the better if we do eat. But take take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ." Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And all God's people said, amen. Let's bow for a moment of prayer. God, we we worship you this day, this afternoon. You're so worthy of all our praises, God. We thank you that you are our God who is in the highlands as well as in the dark valleys that we face. We thank you, God, that we can rely upon you and trust in you. And Lord, this day, as we go over your word in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us, God. In spite of my weaknesses and my shortcomings, God, I just pray that you would demonstrate your power through your spirit as your word is going forth. May you speak to us this day that we may be edified, and in all things, God, you will be glorified. We thank you, Lord, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as we mentioned in the beginning of the series of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is a letter that Apostle Paul wrote in response to a letter that he received from Christians in the city of Corinth. And in that letter contained, um, you know, just their current condition as a church and as Christians. But the letter also contained questions that they had in regards to certain matters and topics that they were dealing with in the city of Corinth. And starting in chapter 7, Apostle Paul starts to address these questions. He starts to address these matters, the the questions that they ask him in the letter. So he opens up, you know, chapter 7, verse 1. He said, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So now he's transitioning, right? uh, Chapters 1 through 6, he's talking about theology and all these things. Now in chapter 7, he starts transitioning into addressing the questions that the Corinthians or the Christians in the city of Corinth were asking. And if you were here last week, we talked about in chapter 7, the topic in the matter of marriage. And that included sexuality, that included divorce, that included even uh, the topic of singlehood. Now in chapter 8, which is today's passage, 
Apostle Paul opens up this way. He goes, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Chapter 7, he says, concerning the things of marriage, now I'm addressing the matters of things sacrificed to idols. You know, it's going to be helpful for us, church, uh, to know some historical background. um, For us to better understand why this topic is even in question. And why it was necessary for Apostle Paul to address it. So to give you some brief info about the church of Corinth, or also the city of Corinth, um, just to refresh our memories, uh, let me just spend a little bit of time just refreshing us and giving us brief info about the city of Corinth. So the city of Corinth was a a prominent city in ancient Greece, but during this time, in Apostle Paul's time, it's a Roman colony, right? One thing that we know about Greeks and Romans is that they were polytheistic. They believe in polytheism, right? So which means that they believe in more than one God, which in turn, they worship more than one God. So with that said, there are a bunch of temples, there's a bunch of shrines to these different gods and goddesses around the whole city of Corinth. So idol worship was very prevalent in the city of Corinth. And as part of idol worship, what would happen is that people will bring animals and they will sacrifice these animals in these different temples, right? Offering up to the gods and goddesses that they're, you know, worshiping and they're going to trying to gain favor. And they're bringing these animals and putting it on the altar as an act of worship. See, parts of the animal, again, were burnt on the altar as sacrifice. Parts of the animal were given to the priests that were serving in the temple. Parts of the animal were given back to the participants or the worshipers that came with the animal so they can eat in the temple courts in that place or take it, take it home and eat in the privacy of their home. The remaining parts of the animal now would be sold to the marketplaces where other people can purchase the meat there. But one thing that you and I have to keep in mind here, church, is this, is that those who sacrifice to the idol have the understanding that consuming the meat or the food that was sacrificed to the idol was the same as participating in idol worship. And as mentioned before, you know, there's different scenarios, different areas where this meat that was sacrificed to idols was being served or it was present. Number one, again, at the temple, right, for special occasions, whether it's a wedding whether, whether it's a special you know, banquet that they're hosting, whether it's a, a social gathering, whatever it is, they're holding a party, sometimes they'll do it in the temple courts, and that's where you know, the meat sacrificed to idols would be served. Again, secondly, they're, they're, they, they will be presented in the privacy of someone's home, whether you purchase it your own and you bring it home to eat it, whether someone, your friend, purchases it and, and brings it home and invites you to come and eat of the meat. And thirdly, like I mentioned, that you can find this meat sacrificing idols in the marketplace where it was sold. Now, how does this relate? Why is this, why is this relatable to the church in Corinth, the Christians there? Well, it's because in church in Corinth, there are two groups of people, right? There are two groups of people or two different sides of, the, of this matter in regards to food sacrifice to idols. First, you had what I'm going to call, it's not mentioned, it's that, that name is not here, but what I'm going to call elitist. That's the first group. And the elitists, they had this knowledge where they had no problem of eating any meat sacrificed to the idols. But again, because they had gained some knowledge after becoming a believer. And we'll see later, and I'll explain later what that knowledge was that they had. So first is the elitists. They have no issue eating any meat sacrificed to idols. Second, it was the others. The others, and we mentioned, they were maybe weaker in their conscience in this regard. And the others, they struggled 
with eating meat that was sacrificed to idols because it reminded them of their past involvement in idol worship. So for them to eat of that meat that was sacrificed to idols, it was still a sin for them. It was wrong for them. It was against their conscience. So the Christians in Corinth write this letter and they're asking Paul, Paul, so what's right? Is it okay for us as believers now to, to eat of this meat that's sacrificed to idols or is it not? And so to answer the question, to respond to the question, Apostle Paul explains it in chapters 8 through 10. In three chapters, he, he responds to this question. But today, thank God, right, we're only going to focus on chapter 8. Okay, there's a lot in chapter 8. I, I'm telling you, I spent hours just reading this and asking questions and all this stuff. Right? But going forward, reading and studying you know, chapter 8, one thing that I realized is that it seems that Apostle Paul is responding more directly to the first group, the elitists, rather than the others. Right? Those who are okay with eating the meat sacrificed to idols, he's directing this response, in, in, my, in my understanding, to them. And so Apostle Paul opens up his response in verse 1 saying this. He says, Now concerning the things sacrificed to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. What Apostle Paul is saying here is that he's saying, hey, you wrote to me asking me regarding or questioning of of meat sacrifice to idols. And in that letter, you let me know or you made a case to me of why it's okay for us to eat that meat that's sacrificed to idols based on the knowledge that we have. Right? And based on the knowledge uh, as believers, now we're free and we should be free to eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols. So that's what Apostle Paul is saying here. And then to that, Apostle Paul, in the end of that first verse, he says, What knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Pretty much Apostle Paul is warning the elitists to not become arrogant, to not become haughty putting others down, looking at the others with contempt because now they've grown or they gained some knowledge as believers. And just to clarify, church, Apostle Paul or Scripture is not against knowledge. It's not against growing in knowledge. There's actually Scripture passages that actually call for knowledge, and they call for growing in knowledge. Let me give you some examples, okay? Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, he says, My people, God's talking, my people are destroyed for a lack of what? Can you read that for me? Knowledge, right? So he's not against knowledge. He's saying, no, you need knowledge. My people are destroyed because of the lack of knowledge. Let me go one more. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, But grow in the grace and what? The knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, Apostle Paul is not against knowledge and growing in it. Rather, he's saying, use the knowledge that you've gained, use the knowledge that you've grown in to help and to build up or to edify your fellow brothers and sisters in love. Rather than using that knowledge to puff yourself up, to make yourself feel more important, right? Or even to act out selfishly. Let me give you a personal example. I remember when I was going to seminary, um, like Bible college, this is where we go to study to become pastors and study theology. I was in seminary, and there's one thing that a couple of our professors would keep saying to us. You know what it was? Exactly what Apostle Paul was saying here. He's saying, check this out, students, or whatever they called us, right, class. They were like, hey, 
you're going to gain a lot of knowledge in seminary. You're going to learn a lot of things. But they said, don't think because you're gaining all this knowledge that you know everything. Don't believe and don't act like you know everything. Don't go out of these classrooms with the knowledge that you've gained in seminary classes, right? Going to your churches and now, you know, looking down at others and, and looking at people with contempt and being super critical now because you've gained this knowledge. Right? People may not have the knowledge that we have. We're, they're, they're not trained in the way that we're trained. Don't use that against them. Rather, our professors would say, hey, use that knowledge that you're gaining and learning here in humility and in love to build up, to edify, to help your fellow brothers and sisters, not to put them down, not so that you can feel important, good about yourself and to be arrogant. He's saying, they were saying, act in love. Again, I kind of jokingly said, hey, if I'm a guest here, it's been three years, right, that I've been at Rooftop almost, almost, April. I'll never forget my anniversary with Deb because my anniversary rooftop lands on the same day, April 2nd, right? So if I forget one, I, it, I just never will forget it, right? Three years. And over the three years that I've been here, I've come to know some of you more intimately. There are things that I've come to know more about you, right? Personal things too. And some of those personal things are, hey, some of your past sins, some of your current struggles, Maybe for some of you, I've been there at your lowest moment where you didn't look so good, right? You didn't look so godly. There are things that I know about you. There are things that I've learned about you. I've seen your flaws. You've probably seen mine too, your shortcomings, right? And this is just a simple plug. In membership class, if we start share our stories, you'll come to realize the intimacy that's built there. So if you haven't signed up yet, sign up, okay? That's, that's a simple plug there. Anyways, now that I've gained some knowledge about some of you here more intimately, I have a choice to make. I can use that knowledge to put you down, to gossip about you, or even belittle you. Or I can use the knowledge that I've gained about you and who you are, right, to help you, to encourage you, to edify you, to simply love on you. You see, the point that Apostle Paul is making here is that what matters is not what we know or how much we know of what we know. Rather, Apostle Paul is saying what really matters is what do we do with what we know? What do we do with the knowledge that we have gained? Will we act arrogantly and selfishly? Or will we act in love, edifying and building each other up? And Apostle Paul is writing this portion in this passage, simply calling us to do the latter, which is what? Is to simply love, is to edify, is to build each other up. And Apostle Paul goes on and he's calling out those who are in the elitist group, right? He's, he's calling out those who are acting in arrogance or even selfishness. And this is what he says in verse 2. He says, if anyone supposes that he or she knows anything, he or she has not yet known as they ought to, or he or she ought to, right? The New Living Translation says this, anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. Apostle Paul is basically saying this. He's saying, those of you, you elitists there in the church of Corinth, those of you that think that you know everything and you're acting like you know everything, you really don't know as you ought to know, right? They were not only acting in arrogance and selfishness, but they were, being, they were ignorant of the fact that they were ignorant. 
You know, I like how one person defines knowledge, and this person defines knowledge this way. He defines knowledge the process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state of ignorance. You get that? Right? The process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state of ignorance. On the same lines, another person says this. Ignorance does not know that it does not know. True knowledge does not know and knows it. Does that make sense? Right? Sometimes ignorance, we don't know that we don't know. But true knowledge, we understand that we don't know. You know, I don't know about you, church, but the more I gain knowledge in this world or whatnot, the more I learn of things, the more I realize how much I really don't know. Even when I study scriptures, like I'm telling you, I struggle with this passage. I was like, what, what are you saying, God? What are you saying? And, and more and more I'm getting like, what are you saying? I don't know what you're saying here. And I'm studying, I'm studying. And one thing that I realized in my relationship with God is more that I come to know about God and scriptures, the more I realize there's so much more for me to still learn. There's so much for me to grow in. And so Apostle Paul here, what he's saying, he says, just because you've gained some knowledge, don't act like and don't think that you know everything. Amen, church? So what is this knowledge that the elitists had, right? What is this knowledge that they had that they felt like, hey, we can eat meat sacrificed to idols without any issue? And we find it in verses 4 to 6, right? Um, Four, five. Okay, next one I'll, I'll switch over. It says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. Basically, as Christians, Apostle Paul is saying that we know that there's only one true God. Amen. We know that. We know that idols are false. They're not real gods. Right? The only God that's, that's real and that's existent is the God of Scripture revealed in and through Jesus Christ. Saying idols are not real. We, we get that. Right? Therefore, on those grounds, their conscience was clear for them to eat meat sacrificed to idols. They didn't have an issue because they knew and they understood the fact that idols aren't, aren't, they're not real. They're not real gods. There's only one true God, uh, the God of Scripture revealed in Jesus Christ. And so Apostle Paul is actually agreeing with their theology. He's agreeing with their theology and saying, yeah, you're right. There is only one God. Idols are nothing. They're not real gods. Although I want to just simply mention here, I'm not going to go into it because you find it in chapter 10. In chapter 10, Apostle Paul does say, and he does you know, mention that there's involvement in demonic activity in the very act of idol worship. He, he mentions that in chapter 10. He says, in the, in the ritual, the ceremony, the very act of idol worship, there's actually demonic activity that goes around. Even though the idols are not real gods. Does that make sense? So there's spiritual activity that's going on. And that includes them not only going to the temple and worshiping you know, their idols and their gods and goddesses, but even the act of sacrificing the, the animal, for, you know, again, just as a sign of their worship and adoration to this God, wanting to gain favor. And then right after that, taking that meat and eating of it, that whole ceremony, Apostle Paul is saying, okay, that, getting involved in that whole ritual, okay, that, that's prohibited. You don't want to get involved with that. You don't want to do that. 
Because there is evil activity that's going on. There's spiritual activity that goes around that. Right? I'll give you an example. Me and Deb, we had the awesome opportunity to go to Japan. I think, yeah, it's last year, right? It's 2020. So last year, there's a bunch of shrines. A bunch of temples. Right? Buddhist temples and, and Shinto temples, whatever. They're all over the place. You're walking in the neighborhood. There's one little room and it's like, boom. It's like, what is that? Right? And they're everywhere. Now, I don't have an issue visiting one of those, like, big Buddhist temples. I have no issue with that. My conscience is clear, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Going to see in a site, say, hey, Dad, let's check this place out. It's historical. It's, it's beautiful, whatever. Like, let's go see it. But the moment I start going in that temple room and start bowing down or whatever it is, right, and start chanting these mantras, okay, now I stepped over. Now I'm getting myself involved in idol worship because I'm, I'm, I'm going in that activity. I'm, I'm, I'm involving myself in that activity, right? And I remember one time my dad, he had a business and um, he, had, he had a worker and this worker was a devout Buddhist. She was sweet. She was nice, right? She was really cool, but she was a devout Buddhist. So every morning what she would do is she would come into the office and she would read off uh, these Buddhist mantras, right? Me... Like when I went to help like Friday mornings, I sat there and she's like doing these chants like out loud. And it's just me and her. I start praying in tongues, dude. Like, yo, I don't know what's going on here, but uh, God, just no bad juju here. Okay. Like, please, Lord, I'm like praying in my mind. I open up scripture because yes, idols, I don't believe they're real. God's not, they're not true, but we have to understand that there is spiritual activity going on. You guys get that? That's, that's just, a, just a little snippet, okay? But in chapter 8, Apostle Paul is focusing more on simply consuming or the consumption of meat that has been sacrificed to idols that they can find in the marketplace or in the privacy of people's homes. Again, he's not, he's not saying it's okay for you to be a part of that, that ritual, but he's saying, hey, just on the grounds or just on the topic of meat that has been sacrificed to idols in consumption of it. Okay, so knowing the fact, again, that the idols are not real, that they're false, because, again, they understand that God is the one and true God, technically, they're free to eat the meat. It's okay for them to eat that meat. There's nothing wrong with it. Apostle Paul says, even in verse 8, he says, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. He says, the, eating the meat will not affect our relationship with God one way or another. One will not be considered uh, uh, more spiritual if they don't eat it. And one will not be considered more spiritual if they do eat it. it it's just neutral. It's immoral. It's, there's no wrong and right in that. So their facts regarding idols were right. Their belief that idols were, were false and that there's only one true God was correct. But the issue was that their hearts were wrong. The issue was that their application of their knowledge was incorrect. What they knew was right. What they knew was correct. It wasn't wrong. But their heart, their attitude, their application of what they knew was wrong. And it was incorrect. You see, although... They knew, they had this knowledge, right? That idols were, were, were not real. There's only one true God. 
And their knowledge of that allowed them to eat the meat sacrificed to idols freely without any issue. They totally disregarded how their act of eating that meat may have tempted the other Christians in that church, right? Caused them to be tempted and now totally going against their conscience. They're now partaking of that meat, even though they're feeling and they're thinking in their mind, like, this is wrong. This is not right. So again, they had everything right, but the application was wrong. They just totally disregarded what the other people and other Christians in the church were dealing and struggling with. Let me read for you. Uh, verses 7 and then 9 through 11. This is Apostle Paul writes. He says, However, not all men have this knowledge. Right? doesn't mean that they don't know that God is one true God and, and the idols are fake. What, it, what he's saying here is that, hey, they, their conscience is not clear yet. It's not, it's not mature to the point that they're okay to eat that meat. That's what Apostle Paul is saying here. But some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse 9. But take care that his liberty, this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened or be emboldened to do the same thing, to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother who's, for whose sake Christ died. Apostle Paul is saying, hey, it may not have been long that some of these converts, right, in, this, in, in, in the church of Corinth, um, that they converted to Christianity from, from their pagan religions, which involved, again, just prevalence of just idol worship. So idol worship being so fresh in their minds, they did not feel that it was okay. They still struggled with that in their conscience. Like, hey, if I, if I eat this, that's like me being part of that idol worship, right? They couldn't get over that fact because, again, it's just fresh for them. But it says that since they saw the elitists, those who had this knowledge freely eating of this meat, it said that they were tempted. It said that they, seeing them eat, they were emboldened. They were emboldened to do the same thing, despite the fact that in their conscience, oh, they were going totally against it. It was wrong, but seeing these people eat it, oh, maybe because they can eat it, I can eat it too. And they fall into that, and then what happens? Freedom for them? No. They're not experiencing freedom. Now they're experiencing guilt, shame, and condemnation. Why? Because they, they're just not at that point where that, in that, the regard of the food or the meat, sacrifice idols, they're not at a point that they're okay with eating that. So instead of feeling freedom, like now I can eat this, I don't have an issue, because they, they haven't wrestled that with God, they haven't come to a point where they're okay with that, now they're feeling guilty, ashamed, and condemned. Let me read to you what Apostle Paul says in Romans. Romans 14, 23, he says, But he who doubts, anyone who doubts is condemned if he eats. He's, again, he's talking about this meat sacrificed to idols. He says, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Because they were eating against their own conscience and not in faith, it says that they sinned. And I think it's fair to assume, church, that a lot of these people, the other group that were not strong in their conscience to do this, they felt shame, they felt extreme guilt, they felt condemned. Not only that, some of these people actually, because they fell back into that, they started going back to their old lifestyle. What they left behind, they got tempted to go back into it. So they started practicing their old lifestyle again. 
How many of you guys have experienced, experienced sin in your life where you failed before God? You committed sin and you felt guilt, shame, or even condemnation. Anybody ever feel that way before? All by myself, right? I've, I've experienced extreme guilt. Oh, man, I messed up again. And sometimes if we're not careful, and I've, I've gone through all three stages, right? Well, the next step is, man, because I'm such a failure, why do I even try? I sh- you know what? Maybe I shouldn't follow God because I just can't do it. Maybe I should just go back to the way I used to live. Right? And then what happens? I go away from that, and then I go deeper and deeper, and I say, you know what? I enjoy my, my sinful life or the life that I live before I came to Christ. And I get stuck in that. So Apostle Paul is saying here, he's like, hey, you have the potential to lead somebody to go through that. To go through the guilt, the shame, the condemnation. For them to question and doubt their, 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 um, their salvation in Christ. For them to be tempted to fall back into their old lifestyle, which they left behind once they committed their life to Christ. And what Apostle Paul is saying here is that you don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. We don't want in any way to tempt anybody to go into sin or to act against their conscience. So Apostle Paul has a strong word for anyone who causes someone to stumble and to go into sin. This is what he says in verse 12. He says, And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, Apostle Paul says, What? You sin against Christ. He says, the moment that you and I cause someone to stumble and to fall into sin through our actions and our liberty or whatever that may be, we've actually sinned against Christ. That's not my word. That's God's word. And that's something we have to be mindful of. One thing I do want to make clear here, church, is this. Causing someone to stumble is not necessarily the same thing as doing something that others do not like. Okay? Stumbling is not voting for the other political party. I stepped on some toes right now, right? Stumbling is not voting for another political party that you affiliate yourself with. That's not stumbling. Stumbling is not choosing in and out over McDonald's after church with a group of friends, despite the fact that you know that your best friend wants McDonald's. That's not stumbling that person, right? Let me give you another one. Stumbling somebody is not whether you like to brush your teeth at night or not. If you know, you know. If you do not know, you do not want to know, right? That's not what's stumbling. That's not what he's saying here, right? So Apostle Paul is not saying that, hey, we should always try to please everybody by what we do. That's not what he's saying. That's not stumbling, okay? That's not what he's, he's, he's regarding as stumbling. Rather, what he's saying, he's saying he's calling us to be mindful. He's calling us to be careful that what we are doing does not hinder or tempt another brother or sister to sin or to go against their conscience. Do you guys see that distinction there? Okay, it's not doing something that someone doesn't like or whatever might be preferences. Stumbling here is actually referring to causing someone to sin, to actually sin or to go against their conscience. That's what he's talking about in stumbling. Just want to make that clear. And so Apostle Paul, he, he ends the, the chapter like this. He says, you know what, out of love for my fellow brothers and sisters, I don't want to sin against them. I don't want to sin against Christ. He says this, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. When I read this, to be honest with you, I did not like what he said. I did not like what he said because it's, it's, it's not easy. 
It's not easy to give up something or to not do something for the sake of someone's edification, although I'm okay doing it. It's not easy. But Apostle Paul, his love for his brothers and sisters, his love for God, moved him to commit to make a radical resolve in saying, I'm willing to do whatever it takes and whatever it is that I don't cause my brother or my sister to stumble. In church, out of love for one another and out of our love for God, a question I want us to ask ourselves is, are we willing to do the same that Apostle Paul was willing to do for his fellow brothers and sisters and believers in the church of Corinth? I'm coming to a close here. We may not deal with food sacrifice to idols in in the 21st century in, in the United States of America, right? We may not deal with those things, um, but I believe there, there are a lot of relevant examples that refer to this, where it causes us to exercise the principle of love, right? Edifying, putting others first. And we call this in the church gray areas. Bible doesn't really say like that's a sin, but it can be sin. It can cause someone to sin, right? Gray areas. Very common example. And I'm going to give just a couple of few and I'm going to close here. One, one is alcohol. Alcohol is a very common example of this, right? Um, Apart from unlawful drinking, intoxication, getting drunk, scriptures don't say that drinking alcohol is a sin. It doesn't speak against that. And some of us here in this room, we have that clear conscience. We have that understanding. We don't have an issue having a casual drink. Amen? Uh, that, That was a... That was a test right there, right? Just see. I was gonna say. <laughs> just, just for the heck of it, right? I thought it was going to be fun. Throw it in there a little bit. Anyways, um, <laughs> but we must understand that some of us in here may not have the same convictions as, as we do, right? It might be different. Others may actually have a history of alcohol, alcoholism, a tendency for alcoholism. Some people have a tendency when they drink, they can't help it but get drunk, right? That's their tendency, And we need to understand this. So our drinking in their presence or when we're hanging out together and we have an alcohol and and, and we understand and we become aware that, hey, my brother or my sister is struggling with this. Are we willing in love for them so that they won't fall into that? Are we willing to say, you know what, when I'm hanging out with you, when we're together, we don't need to have alcohol. We don't need to have alcohol. Like, I'm cool. Like, I'm chill. I can have fun with you without having alcohol. Right? remember some people are like, hey, man, is your wedding dry or you got open bar? Right? That's one of the first questions that people ask sometimes. Like, hey, dry bar? Or dry, is that a dry bar? Was that such a no, dry wedding or open or wet? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, okay. Anyways, that didn't sound right, okay? Dry, dry wedding or alcohol, okay? Is, is it, it going to be there or whatever, right? And some people, to be honest, I was kind of like that. Like, I wasn't okay with alcohol at the wedding. Like, that, that for me, it, it's dry. I struggled. Not anymore, and you know it because some of you, we had beer together before, right? You, you were there. But in the past, I struggled with that. And some of us here, we may be going through that same struggle. So again, in love, when we apply this, are we willing to say, hey, you know what? When I'm with you, and you see me, we're hanging out. I know you struggle with these tendencies. It might lead you to sin. So I don't tempt you. I'm okay with not having a beer tonight. I'm okay with the Shirley Temple, amen? Have a little cherry on the top, Right? So that's one case. How about secular music? Right? Is it okay to listen to secular music, uh, uh, whatever, like, K-pop songs, right? And, like, um, 
whoever, is it okay? Apart from inappropriate music, right? Apart from really inappropriate music, I don't think scripture says like, hey, all you, all you can listen to is Hillsong, Jesus Culture, Mad Redman, Passion, and only Christian music. I don't really read that. I don't see that. Now, if music is causing you to sin, okay, that's something you got to think about. That's something you got to discern. But in general, there's nothing really in scripture that says you can't listen to other music apart from Christian music, Right? Again, I experienced this. I had an issue. I used to listen to a lot of hip-hop and rap. I love Tupac. I love Bone thugs and harmony That was my music. I also love country music like Dixie Chicks and all that stuff. I listened to all kinds of music, okay? But when I recommitted my life to Christ at the end of high school, my conscience was, was kind of weak in that area where I was like, I need to give up all secular music. Because if I listen to secular music, like, man, I feel like I'm sinning, right? I'll give you an example. I was driving to Cal State Long Beach one time. I was listening to Tupac one time. And it's been a while since I was listening to rap music or secular music. I was like, ah, I was, I was just, I don't know. I just wanted to listen to Tupac, listen to, you know, Dear Mama, whatever, right? And I'm listening to that. I'm speeding. When I'm hearing, I feel like I'm a G, right? Like, oh, yeah, Tupac, dude. Like, I'm cool, right? And my Xterra that doesn't extend lower than whatever, right? And it's like driving, like, cool. I'm feeling good. I'm probably going a little bit faster than I should. I see a cop car right behind me. I don't feel like a G anymore. I'm like rolling up like. Right, like, oh, shoot. And I started thinking, like, oh, maybe this is God punishing me. Oh, I, I, I felt like, dang, I shouldn't have listened to secular music. Like, it got to me. It really got to me. Thank God that the, the cop, he rode by. And I went to Cal State Long Beach without a, without a ticket, right? But some of us in this room, like, we're okay with secular music. We're fine with it. But some of us, we, we may not. We may not be comfortable so in that case, in love, again, are we willing, if, if I'm driving in the car with you or whatever, like, hey, I just won't turn on secular music because I know you struggle with it. I'm okay with that. Does that make sense, church? We can go on and on. There's so many things, but I, I'm going to stop there because I'm going too long, all right? But I'll let you discuss that in, in blocks, right? Some people ask me, what about tattoos? What do you think, right? I don't know, okay? I have my thoughts, whatever, okay? Tattoos. Uh, rated R movies and shows. What about that? Okay. Again, your blocks. Go. Go. Talk about it. Discuss. Okay. Those are things that we need to discern. But to close today, um, I want us. I just want to remind us really quickly of a prime example. Right. If there's any, if there's, if there's a time or any moment that you and I are wrestling, we're struggling, giving up our freedom, our liberties, things that's not really sin. Like giving that up um, for the sake of loving our brother and sister so we, don't, we edify them and not lead them or tempt them into sin. If we ever struggle with that, and if you're ever at a moment uh, in that situation, um, let me point you to Jesus Christ. Let's be honest here, church. Jesus would have been totally right. It would have been totally okay for him to leave us in our sinful state. It would have been even just for him to leave us as we were, hopeless, destined for eternal condemnation. He really didn't have to. It wasn't the right thing to do, right, for him to come and save us. He was totally just. We couldn't say anything if that's what he decided to do. But we're here today, why? Because it says that because he loved us, for God so loved the world that he gave he gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you and me so that what those who believe in him will have eternal life. 
He did it in love so that you and I will not be stuck in our hopeless state for eternal condemnation, totally separated from God for eternity. But Jesus gives of himself. Read Philippians chapter 2. He, he came down in the form of man. He suffered and he died in love for us so that you and I can be forgiven and so that you and I can be redeemed. The next time we struggle to love our brothers and sisters because oh, it's hard to give up our liberties, our freedoms, and all those things, let us remind ourselves of Jesus Christ. Amen, church.